Hey there, this is a joint podcast between the Vassals of Kingsgrave and the Bastards of Kingsgrave. In this episode, we review two stories from George R. R. Martin's Thousand Worlds setting. If you would like to hear our previous reviews of Martin's short fiction, you can find them on the BOK podcast feed and the VOK YouTube channel. If you would like to read the stories, most of them are available in Martin's 2003 collection entitled Dream Songs. We return to our longest-running reread of George R. R. Martin's earlier works. This is Amin, and I'm joined by our reread group, who will introduce themselves in chronological order. Um, I'm Michael, or Mordian on the forums. My name is Duncan, also known as Valkyrst on the forums. And I'm Zach, also known as Alias on the forums, and uh, happy to be joining this uh, exploration into the other things that George R. R. Martin wrote. Well, this reread is kind of rivaling our Ice and Fire reread in terms of pace. Like we started in 2013, and Michael, you were there for that first one when uh, we unsigned variations that we did, yeah. which is not a thousand worlds story, or a, a, as I like no. to call it, a George verse story, but it's in the Martin sphere, the, the broader yeah. term. There's nothing <laughs> like, like a cor- nothing like a global pandemic to get us back on track. <laughs> yes, right. So we're going to be covering two stories from the Thousand Worlds universe, and today's episodes, as usual, will be spoiler-filled discussions. That's the way we roll here. Duncan, since you Kind of we're on the driving force back after three years. Uh, well, I'll let you introduce the first story we're going to be covering. Yeah, so basically I got super into the what's called the Thousand World series, which is a series that Martin kind of did before Song of Ice and Fire. It was it's, it's very loose to call it a series. It's basically a setting where a lot of his short stories take place. The Thousand Worlds uh, is the informal title given to a collection of <clears throat> stories written by Martin. It includes many of the things that we've covered on Bastards of Kingsgrave already, such as A Song for Liar, uh, Sand King's Night Flyers, as well as his debut novel, Dying of the Light, and the fix-up novel, uh, Tough Voyaging. So these stories take place in a universe where Earth has settled numerous planets, thus forming the Federal Empire. As they expanded, however, humanity entered into wars with two rival alien species, the Harangans and the Findi. This double war ended up destroying the Empire and plunging the galaxy into chaos. Uh, so the title, Thousands Worlds, is a reference to the leftover worlds and peoples of this intergalactic melee. Um, most of the stories are set during the post-interregnum period, as disparate human cultures gradually regain interstellar flight and re-establish contact with one, one another. Um, however, in this episode, the stories we'll be looking at are Bitterblooms and In the House of the Worm. Both of these are set during the interregnum period. They depict worlds that are plagued by ecological disaster and human societies that have regressed to cultural dark ages, which I didn't realize when I picked these, but Amber points it out. It's a bit prescient to pick them during during a pandemic or a social uh, lockdown of society. So the first uh, story we'll be looking at is Bitter Blooms. So Bitter Blooms is a science fiction novelette by Martin, first published in the 1977 issue of Cosmos Science Fiction and Fantasy magazine. It takes place on an unknown planet. It's about a girl who gets lost in the woods in deep winter. Uh, She's rescued by a magical woman who takes her back to her spaceship. Uh, So what did you guys think of this story? How, what should we uh, use to grade it? I was thinking, uh, was it frost flowers or frost blooms? Was it was a term of the generic? Not just bitter blooms is is one example, but uh, frost flowers. Yeah, 
Out of yeah, five, five frost flowers, what would you give it? I'd, I'd give it uh, 3.5 out of five uh, frost flowers. I thought it was a good story. I enjoyed In the House of the Worm better in comparison. So I think it's a pretty solid grade, but not, not the best. That's, that's an okay story in my view. Yeah, I think three is about what I would say as well. Um, I tend to have um, less positive reactions to sort of post-apocalyptic uh, type stories, uh, worlds in decayed worlds or whatever you want to call it, always uh, make me depressed and make me enjoy the story less. Um, there also like there wasn't so much of a of a narrative. I mean, it was sort of like a classic like fairy tale sort of vibe to it, right? Like just like the story that she told at the beginning with the family that uh, went there and then ate mm. until they starved to death. Um, sort of just like a, a really like a fairy tale vibe, right? Like more than more than there's a real narrative to it. Yeah, I'd say three and a half as well for me. I think the the actual presentation of the world was really compelling to me. Just the idea of this frozen overworld and the sort of ways that people have have responded to that. I love the idea that everyone travels by skis, even though that's totally unrealistic. But it was a cool idea, <laughs> and I thought the way it ended was really strong. I thought it really brought home kind of the theme of the story. Yeah, um, I thought it was simple but effective. Um, I like the sense of melancholy and yearning and the way that Barton blended fantasy and science fiction, sort of showing them as two sides of the same coin. I thought the world was really well described, and I particularly loved the image of the old spaceship in the snow covered in covered in flowers. So I'd probably give it, yeah, probably three, three frost flowers. So do we have any information uh, from Dream Songs on, on the story? I think it is a, a brief a bit that George talked about it, right? Not a lot? A little bit, yeah. So he um, often gives a bit of an annotation uh, in Dream Songs um, for each of his stories. And uh, when it comes to Bitter Bloom, he mentions that he wrote it around the same time that he moved from Chicago to – how do you say that town again? Dubuque? Dubuque. <laughs> sounds right. Dubuque, Iowa, <laughs> uh, which he found was even co- – like the, the winters were even more ferocious in Dubuque. Um, so that uh, influenced the chilly nature of the story. Um, and also the, the name Bitter Blooms is inspired um, by a song, and he tells the reader, if you can guess what song it was inspired by, you win absolutely nothing. <laughs> I wonder if it was around the same time he wrote Ice Dragon. That probably would be – it would make sense. I, I think it was similar. He had moved to a colder climate. So- so I think Ice Dragon was pu- – I mean, it, I don't know when it was uh, written, but it was published a couple of years later, 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found interesting was this was probably one of the earliest, like, very fantasy-heavy stories. So he's, he mostly mm-hmm. um, edged towards science fiction in his early career in the 1970s. But this has, like, a very – like, it did feel a bit like A Song of Ice and Fire. It's, like, medieval-level yeah. technology. The descriptions of the cold is very much like the descriptions of the north and beyond the wall. Um, so this feels like it's his first kind of foray into into what would become a song of ice and fire or that setting. Yeah, he has a what was it Karen Hall? Yeah, Karen Hall. It sounds like Karen Hall. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. The, the 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 uneven seasons or the or not even uneven but lengthy seasons, like, you know, longer than usual. Yeah, deep, deep winter, I think, goes for years rather than months. Um, and I think the biggest um, nod is the blue flowers, like the blue winter roses. Mm, yeah. So, haunting edge dreams. Yeah. yeah in, t- in terms of the idea of talking about ways in which these stories have kind of culminated in A Song of Ice and Fire, of course, I do think I think the big takeaway for me is that, I, and he claims that it's the Dubuque thing, but I do think there's just a general fascination he has with 
these sort of frozen wastelands and the ways that that makes you changes your cultural behavior and also uh, the, the the blue flower thing in particular i thought was really remarkable and uh as far as projecting the things that like the images that that george R. R. martin really you know comes back to repeatedly uh, it's yeah. true how they adapt uh to to a difficult uh you know climate or difficult world though they still make the most of it people make the most of it, the way they're able to have gatherings and uh still keep their population up at, at those times Coupling it with the Song of Ice and Fire, I think it's interesting the way that it starts out as a fantasy, but gradually you get the mm. the context of it being science fiction or, or the scientific explanations for why there's such long winters, the fact that it's set against this backdrop of the double war and this ecological devastation that a lot of um, planets have undergone. Um, and you get more of a sense of all the other planets that exist um, through Morgan's video screen. Um so I thought that was interesting, like it actually, or A Song of Ice and Fire is purely magical and we get no mingling of any of the any of the explanations behind any of these things. <laughs> this is an example of a story that gives us both a fantastical explanation or perspective of the world, and then it's sort of more scientific explanation for the world. And both are sort of equally valid in a weird way, I don't know. So I did want to ask briefly on the Thousand Worlds thing. Um, so is that supposed to be a thing that, he had in mind from the start when he started writing all these short stories or something he kind of applied retroactively to to kind of unify all the things that he had written it's hard to tell um he sort of describes it in dream songs that the 1970s most of the stories in that that he was writing most of the science fiction stories were loosely in this future universe or this future setting that he called that he dubbed the thousand worlds because it was so they have a lot of shared elements so they have a lot of shared places Several stories, for example, mention Avalon. So this story mentions Avalon, which is kind of this center of human learning that emerged out of the interregnum. Um, also, like Nightflyers starts on Avalon. That's where the scientists begin before they go on their voyage. Um, Dying of the Light, they mention Avalon a lot. That's where Dirk and Gwen met. The first story he mentions in Dream Song as taking place in this universe is the hero, and the hero actually is set during the Double War, so the war between the humans and the Harangans, which is this alien species. But it's hard to tell, like, most of them take place after the Interregnum, so they'll be sort of mentioning back. This is one of the few stories that takes place in a world that is still in the midst of kind of chaos and destruction and ecological disaster. Well, I think that's important to, to point out, like, just the way you're using Interregnum here, there's two different meanings to it. There's there's just the general Interregnum, as in you've lost space flight and contact with other planets which many many so many worlds are still stuck in that state versus like there was an interregnum for the main planets that they're over with now like a lot of these side planets are stuck in that mode but overall a lot of planets like i think when avalon came back kind of ended it for a lot of planets right they were like going around spreading knowledge yeah, the the best place to figure out all of this backstory, because like reading the stories on their own, you don't get a sense of this. So if you'd read Bit of Loops on its own, it, hopefully it still works as its own story. But once you start piecing the stories together, you get that kind of shared continuity. The best place to go is the glossary of Dying with the Light. That's actually where it outlines a lot of the history and a lot of the shared planets and, and whatnot. So once you kind of read through that, you get a sense of all of the, the people, the historical figures and the planets that are mentioned in Bit of Blooms. But I think, as, as you, Kenny mentioned, it, like, even though he was working in, in this kind of, like, one universe for many of these stories, I think, yeah, he grouped it more later on, especially with Dying the Light. I think he finally sat down and was like, okay, let me set the glossary for this. Let me set the exact terms. Whereas before that, I, I think, think so, yeah. Random planets, basically. <laughs> or a generic timeline. But, he, but he, he, the timeline is in such a way that it gives him incredible freedom, right? Because every planet 
that's doing its own thing can just can be like on that because of that because of the fall of the empire because of the fall of the federal empire it can do what he wants on each planet. And yeah, we're, yeah. we're not believers that a saga of ice and fire somehow fits into this. No, I mean I no, but at the same time I I mean I think that that's one of the you know strengths or or whatever you want to say of the thousand worlds right is that you can squeeze just about anything into it if you want right. to right yeah so. I think and it, he could, but it would be a mistake. I mean, I think Asimov made yeah. a mistake potentially with some of it. Like, it, 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 it sometimes it's a mistake to try to link everything together as right. an author th- for your own works. I agree. Yeah, I think it would be a mistake, and, and there's no, and it wouldn't add anything to uh, Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. yeah, I don't mind if it's something that we could speculate about, but I think you're right that if it's firmly confirmed in some fashion in the story, that would that would be bad. But like, it could it could be true. Like, I, I'm okay with that being sort of a an open question. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of the – if you look at Ice and Fire, a lot of it you could have scientific explanations, but some of it is really stretching. I mean, so I suppose you could – like just like the uh, the undead being moved around. Like we're not even talking about corpse handling here. We're talking about literal like things that are dead. Like there's, there's not even a brain there. Like what are they using like magnetic fields or something to move these guys around? Like, I suppose you could, but I, I think that takes away from it. That doesn't really aid the explanation in my view. It doesn't make it more enjoyable. Yeah, sure. All right, I'm sorry. Get back to the story. I just want to <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, that's, I mean that's one of the important questions I think yeah. that comes up, and I think what leads people down this road is that the themes do do come. A lot of the themes do come from these previous works. A lot of the names come. A lot of the ideas George has honed mm. from his past writings, and he and he's putting them in this you know his magnum opus now. But that doesn't mean therefore that this work is in the same universe. No, he's just drawing upon previous themes. Yeah, yeah. Just, it's the natural progression as an author, right? Like you're just going to slowly develop these ideas that define what you want to try to accomplish, and it's going to. And in this case, it culminated in what happened to be his most successful work, but uh, that doesn't usually happen. But that was lucky for him, I guess. Yeah, and I think you see that in a lot of his works, both *The Song of Ice and Fire* and his short stories. Like this story seems to be about this tension between reality and fantasy, and the fact that we often prefer the fantasy because mm. it's. I don't know. It's more fulfilling. It's more it creates more wonder in our soul in some sense, and the reality is often disappointing. So you see that a lot with like um, uh, one of the earlier stories that Bastard of Kingsgrave looked at, "Morning with Morning Comes Misfall." That's mm-hmm. kind of about that tension, like two sides, two different perspectives on how the world should be viewed. Like the scientist says, we should just we need to find the actual, you know, cellular truth of every, anything, and the 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 owner of the hotel is like, well, that that doesn't answer all the questions that doesn't answer all the fulfill the the needs of a human being a human being needs mystery and needs um all these things like uh, yearning and and dreams and romance and whatnot um and that's kind of that seems to be sort of the moral of a bit of blooms like sean had this really fulfilling life but at the end of it she was kind of disappointed and wanted to return to the to the dream world to the fantasy world that that morgan weaved yeah uh, that's uh it's kind of like the morning comes misfall kind of relates to this. It's almost like, oh, if you're demanding that this be part of the thousand worlds because it must have a scientific explanation, you're like that guy. <laughs> morning come misfall. Yeah. You couldn't even tell like what misfall from misrise. Yeah. Just following what Duncan was saying about the the sort of theme that he carries into his Song of Ice and Fire and his other stories, I think it it came across very strongly for me in this one in Bitter Blooms, like. I don't know. I, I don't think overall it was as well constructed a story as in the House of the Worm, but like the that ending scene of Sean 
just like in the snow outside of the ship and just like looking to return to that thing. Like you say, after having this life that, you know, any person would be happy with under these circumstances, but like, just like the, the fact that she's willing to die there in the snow to try to get back to, uh, the fantasy world or the things that, that, uh, she was shown and like ultimately having that revelation that that's the thing that she wants. Like that was just a powerful, I thought a really powerful way to end the story. And I think, uh, a really effective way to kind of demonstrate that theme. Just a quick point. Uh, we were just talking about earlier how themes and in going into this. I mean, he was George was writing Avalon. I wonder if Avalon was going to be his big book where he put all those themes together, like kind of had his that could have been his magnum opus, and then he suddenly switched to Ice and Fire. Like that's what like the view that he had the vision of the chapter of Brandon in the snow and the wolves in the snow, and then so he switched. But I wonder what Avalon would have mm-hmm. been if he'd stayed on that road. Do you think part of the motivation for that might have been the fact that? With this, with Avalon, of course, with things like Morgan Le Fay and all that, that's obviously established myth, um, mm. a thing that was made before. And, of course, all writing, anything that's created is is inspired or affected in some way, but it's a very explicit and clear thing that he's drawing from here. So did, do you think he wanted to kind of build up more of his own mythology as opposed to um, relying on things that were previously established? Well, I, I mean, it, even it, it's fantasy. He gets to, to write it. Like, I mean, it, it, George sees it all being somewhat similar, just different you know, backgrounds, different uh, uh, things being used, but it, it gave him his ability to flex that muscle, right? I think he maybe had enough of, like, the spaceships and he wanted to switch over to the <laughs> swords and, all, and armor and all that. Maybe, yeah. I almost think that you're right, that it literally was just this, this like, one crystallizing moment of seeing that image that, that inspired all of that. Like, that was just the pure motivation of it. Like, yeah. I need to follow where this, this scene is taking me. But, yeah, it's I just uh, wonder if he, if he carried the themes that he would have put in Avalon just straight over to Ice and Fire. Like, if, if he hadn't done that switch, he just would have had these same themes in Avalon. Oh, yeah, I'd Avalon say so. Series. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of amazing, though, that he would because I think Avalon was intended to be a magnum opus. It was meant to be like this culmination of all this mythology and whatnot. Like his description, I, I, I'm i sure I read somewhere that he wanted to be like this sci fi war and peace with like multiple volumes. And so he'd probably done a lot of planning before he even started writing. And apparently the writing was going well. But then, yeah, just this image, this particular image that just came to him from nowhere, completely like enthralled him and he had to follow that. I feel like that's an interesting, like, that clash of science and fantasy. Like, in some ways, science seems more tangible or more real or stronger or more substantial. But that that sense of wonder or spectacle can pull you away. I do think that is possible in science fiction as well. And maybe that's the weird murky ground of, like, language where science fiction is not the same thing as, like, a fantastical sort of speculative fiction that's set in the future. Like, that could also inspire wonder, but the the, the sort of terms of science fiction demand that it be a little more logical. I don't know. I, I just think, like, when I think of science fiction the way I interpret it, it can also inspire that sort of wonder that, that you can chase. It just so happened that the one that he really was struck by at that time was a fantasy. Mm. Yeah, sure. Just a final comment before we I, I, we go back. To, go ahead. Someone, do you have some? Oh, I was just gonna say I I I'm not sure that I would necessarily. I don't know. I feel like that there are different flavors of wonder. I guess I think that there's something about magic, like unexplainable magic, versus like potentially yeah, yeah. explainable science, hmm. where I think you just it does have a different flavor. I was just thinking about um, what's the name? Sean going back to the to the ship at the end, and. <laughs> Just thinking about like so when she was on the ship in the first place as a, as a young woman, um, it was all magical and she thought she was traveling to all these different places and everything. And if she had succeeded in getting back on the ship, um, 
Really, she would have she would have just been doing what we're all doing, which is locking ourselves in our apartment watching television, <laughs> right? I mean, like, yeah, and she chose she chose that, right? Right, exactly. Which I mean, again, makes total sense, right? I mean, like if I lived in a in a freezing medieval society, I would absolutely want to lock <laughs> myself in awesome. my house and watch television, right? But like, yeah. but yeah, once you recognize what's actually happening, um, then you know, yeah, I, I don't know. There's something. You lose some, you lose some romance and some something. No, I, no, I, I get it. And you, I think, I think the goal of science fiction is always in part, it's sort of to hold like a dark mirror up to our society as it exists when the work was written. So there's a certain element of like, just like discomfort associated with that, of having to confront some of the things that we're dealing with in this world today. And fantasy kind of does manage to, and I, I don't think George R. R. Martin's necessarily trying to do this at all times, but it does kind of have a natural, ability to escape from that that discomfort and just unsettling aspect of science fiction yeah and i i don't necessarily think it's like a fight between fantasy and science fiction like martin has said before you know these things are in many ways the same thing they're just like different i think he describes it as different furniture or different costumes but it's essentially speculating and imagining and you know yeah, taking yeah. something to its logical conclusion but i feel like bitter blooms it's more like fantasy versus reality like and that is not necessarily presented as a good thing like in morning comes mistful it's kind of the story seems to side a bit more with the ending of human beings do need fantasy we do need a sense of wonder whereas bitter blooms like you could see it that way but you could also see it that other way that the way michael describes is dissociating yourself from the rest of the world you know you could see it as the way that people disappear into video games or movies mm. or or books like i can't deal with reality i have to escape into fantasy and that's not necessarily a good thing but who knows i guess it's ambiguous you know sometimes if, how, we need that sense of wonder but if we go too far we could lose everything how is that moderated by the fact that sean makes that choice at the end of her life like does that change things at all the fact that she chooses to go back to this is like a last like our last reminder of this, this special time that she had, or or is it not? I don't know. Interesting question, I guess. Well, if she's gonna die anyway. I mean, then it makes yeah, sense exactly. Going there. I think so. But but yeah. part of the th- problem was, was is it seemed that she didn't seem to enjoy her life that much. Her life was weakened because of this experience. Fair, yeah, fair. Yeah, this is this is definitely a negative spin. You can definitely accept <laughs> it. So Morgan in this ship, she was somebody that lived on this world and discovered the world, right? Is that uh, correct? Um, I think so. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I my initial thought was that she was from Avalon, and that she'd flown there, and somehow her ship had been damaged, and she was never able to go back. Mm-hmm. But yeah, maybe she maybe she discovered the ship, and it's never actually been there, so it's only living through the the video screens. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered that reading actually. That's interesting. Well, my my view of that is because at the very end. Uh, right. Sean goes and yeah. she's like, "There's the the book of Beth for sixty years ago, sixty yeah, sixty years old. It's from sixty years ago. Like, why would she be sure there's a book of Beth? What is this book of Beth thing? Is that Beth Morgan? Well, she'd interacted. Well, apparently she can live really long because of the food, and she'd interacted with previous speakers. But yeah, I wasn't sure. So it could be either way. It could be that she'd come from Karen Hall or come from one of the other castles, or that she'd interacted with them." After arriving on the planet, I don't know. Yeah, I, I really, I didn't understand the Beth thing. I think that the stronger um, evidence for the uh, for Morgan being a a local is the fact that she took her name from the name of the ship, right? Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, I think that that's strong evidence for that. Well, but yeah, she's, I, she's not sure how that. Uh, why she lives long? She said, "I think it's the food." Like, yeah, you, I you think, think she would know yeah. that if she came for half a long. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I interpreted that as a kind of with the the name of the ship and with the living long. It's kind of like a, a golem situation where like at some point she forgot her actual name and she just took oh. on the things around her and just for whatever reason, just like because of living for so long, yeah. like she lost those aspects of herself from the past. And that might be the cautionary message that, you know, had, like, she was a person like Sean who sort of dreamed of more and dreamed of adventure and came across this ship and kind of just got lost in it and lost in fantasy. And that maybe Sean, as an old woman coming back to it, that might be her same fate. She might go into the ship, (laughs) become lost in fantasy and try and lure other people into it to to, to sort of groom or to to whatever. Mm. I was curious, what? How did people interpret the the ice wagon? Because when I first read it, like the thought I had was like it was some kind of like version of Apollo's chariot, except it causes deep winter instead of like bringing the sun to warm everything. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on. It's like, how did people think about what that was? I just thought it was a constellation. I don't know. The two blue eyes, I think, right? And it, it, I think it it was. They say it's the reason why it's cold. Now that could just be mythology or whatever, right? But it yeah, could it could just be. Yeah. It could also be that that's part of the reason. Like maybe maybe there is. I mean, they could be remembering. I mean, it's some kind of like spaceship that's blocking the sun or something. <laughs> that that or, or or like I mean, they remember. Like they, remember, these people came from Federal Empire. Where they used to have space flight, right? So they originally maybe knew why it was cold here, and maybe if if they for, are for some reason sure that this constellation is the reason why, like it, the ice dragon make, bring, makes everything cold and it takes you away when you die. Well, maybe yeah, it, whatever it is, maybe that thing is is causing it to be cold. That particular geometry of this solar system, that knowledge might be true. They just remember it as fantasy now. Like the, the yeah, or, or yeah, or it's possible that like whatever weirdness is going on with the planetary's you know planetary orbit or, or rotation or whatever mm. that it happens that in the winter uh, they they now see this constellation instead of you know. Uh, what they what they would see in the summer. Well, it might be causal, I mean, it might not be. It might just by feet, yeah, exactly. feet that it's may or there, may not be. or it may actually be the cause, and that's why you see it. Right. Like, they come near, they orbit nearby, and yep. Like I mean, it could have. If it wasn't uneven, uh, you know, if it wasn't like the weird seasons. If it's just cold, you just say it's just a cold, a small sun or something. <laughs> but because of the switch, sure. yeah. some other stellar situation that's creating it. It's hard to tell because the people here obviously weren't originally here that are a settlement that's kind of fallen back into you know medieval yeah uh, whatever but it's hard to know was that caused because they've lost contact with the the home colonies lost contact with earth for you know thousands mm-hmm. of years and have fallen into this or has something happened to them like did the double war affect the climate in some way did yes. you know a biological ship affect the climate and made, made it perpetually cold and that's kind of flung them into this regressed you know society um but maybe it was always cold and they had ways of um, uh, buffeting the cold or protecting themselves against the cold. They had um, spacesuits or whatnot, and they've lost that, and now they just have to survive on their own. They have it's definitely ones. a fun mystery, yeah. just to speculate. Yeah. It probably was just you know, smacked down during the war, and they lost contact with the outside, so they couldn't really – they lost their technology and didn't uh, – weren't able to recover it. Mm. Well, I mean, here, here's the whole thing with these vampire things, right? Like, what the heck are these vampires things? I, I started thinking back to, like, you know, like, yeah. voyaging and stuff, you know, those different species that were either produced or, or used by the Harangans. Like, it, it could mm-hmm. be that some of those were loosed on this world and it just kind of broke down. 
Also reminded me of the. I mean, I guess I read this one first, but retroactively reminded me of the of the worm thing too, right? With the two mm. different races that are, you know, and, mm. and point. they could have just diverged or you know been created different, or you know, who knows? Yeah, so I mean, it could be a human species has been right. deformed yeah, by yeah. by biological warfare during the double war. It could be one of the Harangan slave races because yes. a few of them are mentioned. Something. Yeah, well, there's. Well, in the next, hopefully the next um, story we're going to read in the in the next episode, um, and seven times never kill man. They mention one of the slave uh, races and they refer to it as like a a mind vampire. Mm. Um, but the way it's described is different to what we see here. Um, this this vampire creature it sounds more like a dactyloid, um, which is kind of like a winged pterodactyl creature that the Harangans would use in warfare. So the fact that it has wings and it, it sort of screeches and whatnot. It doesn't fly. It only seems to run on the on the snow, but it sounds a bit like a dactyloid. Probably just an adapted Harangan species. I'm sure they probably had many, or, or they adapted over time. Like, the, the origin was that. That could easily... Yeah, like, maybe the, the winds are too extreme for them to fly. But it, the idea, I guess, would be that it's a slave race, but since the Harangans were destroyed, the slave race is kind of just free to inhabit areas yeah it reminds me of cavalar right that was the same thing with the cavalar world right like they were they were all these races that were still around and had to be dealt with Mm. Um, yeah 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 okay that was my main question in terms of just the the textual uh stuff um other than yeah i I think beth 60 years old that that's too that's too recent like morgan seemed like she was older than that uh but maybe beth had some Maybe not. Maybe 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 it is Beth that she came here at the end of her life. But they, they were talking about these other this other family that apparently starved in the cold. Remember that? Mm. I don't know if there's any thoughts on that or what happened there. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I sort of just believe it as it was told that a family starved because she was feeding them fake food. Um, and like her, they sort of went crazy or starved because they weren't actually being nourished with anything. It's not clear to me why she's able to live so long though. Yeah, it can't be just the food. Like. If she's still a human sense. being, surely she'll still die. But yeah, maybe she's not that. a human being. I mean, she's like she's AI or something. Well, I mean, there's all kinds. Of, I mean, you know, just like even our, you know, like I don't, we don't know what kind of like weird medications or nanotech or who knows what. I mean, like there could be something in the food that you know causes telomere shortening not to happen, right? I mean, like oh, it could effectively. You know, could, the rest of the worlds don't seem to have that though, unless this. Oh, I see. Sure, I guess that's fair. Do you actually yeah, ever get yeah. to go to Avalon in the Thousand Worlds? Is that a thing that happened? They start from the, Avalon and Nightflyers, don't they? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the closest. That's the only like one it where it never comes up. They're eating food it. that keeps them alive for 300 years. I mean, yeah. Cleronomus <laughs> has to do all this, like, cy- cyborg stuff to stay around. It's not like he's yeah. eating nice bread and he lives longer. Like, they, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's the only figure that... We He's don't the only figure sh- that lives centuries, yeah, because all of his shipmates die during the voyage to sort of yeah. survey the galaxy after the interregnum. Yeah. And we don't know what they what she means by lives long, I guess, either, right? Good point. I mean, we don't, yeah, we don't know how long that actually is. Like, it might just be like, you know, un- I don't mean just, but like, it might just be like 120 or something. Double right? what they normally might live. Yeah. There, maybe right. even yeah. a little bit longer, right? Yeah. Um, if that's the case, then the story of Beth is 60 years old. It makes sense, although kind of, right? Yeah. It's within that time yeah. frame. Right. All right. So two other quick comments. Uh, Craig seems like a douche, but maybe he's also like, – <laughs> he's a product of a society, right? It depends on the different yeah, voices yeah. do different of stuff course. at different seasons. Yeah. 
uh, mushrooms are served. So there's mushrooms in this story and the next one. George, uh, there's a ton of mushrooms. mushrooms in the next story. <laughs> <laughs> mushrooms are often served in George's George's story, including Highland Cup. Uh, mushroom bread. Right, that, that's something I want to try now after hearing about it all the time. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's also a lot of incest in both stories. Like they're attracted to yeah, those it describes at the beginning Lane, the person who dies, as a father, brother, and lover all at once, which is an interesting yeah. combination yeah, of associations. But, but, but I, I feel like when it says family, they really mean clan. That, that's yes. what they mean. Like, yeah, yeah not playing all, different like, roles. Not one actual biological family, but a couple of close-knit yeah. families. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly what lover means. Like um, Morgan also described Sean as a lover, and I don't think there's any actual sex. Maybe it was just in the background. Oh, the sex is uh, I think there is. Yeah. Okay, I, I thought it was implied, you know. Yeah, yeah, you don't I say think it, it's but implied, it's... but I think it's there. Uh, uh, the Still brother is, is the weird. The father part, you can see like he's kind of like our mentor and helped her get away from Craig. The brother's like, what do you mean? Right. Okay. Is yeah. it his brother because you're from the same clan? Maybe? That's it. Like your blood brothers or something? Like your, your clan brothers? Maybe that's the term they always use that? But, yeah, could be. I think, Zach, you mentioned there was sort of a few allusions to mythology. So Avalon is a mythical island in Arthurian mm. legend, but also Morgan Le Fay is a powerful enchantress in Arthurian legend. She becomes an apprentice of Merlin, and she's described as like sexually active and even predatory, just kind of what we see in this story. And I thought it was interesting, like we get these mentions of Chloronymus and all these other historical figures in the Thousand Worlds universe, but I did a little bit of reading on Avalon in the Arthurian legend, and apparently it's referred to as the Island of Apples, and I thought that the way that Martin's using it, it almost has like Christian imagery, like the idea of like the forbidden fruit of knowledge, because that's where Chloronymus founds the Academy of Human Knowledge. Correct me if I'm wrong. Also, Avalon, only like fairy woman can go there. Is that correct? Possibly. I think that's where Morgan Le Fay is from, and she's referred to as a fairy or a witch or something. I think Arthur goes there after he's been famous. Yeah, Arthur gets wounded. to go because Arthur gets to do whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he gets revived. But yeah, maybe only fairies or magical folk can go there. I was curious and, about the all the names that are mentioned in, in association with Morgan, like all these other like mythical people. Like, are there, do those appear? Like, Eric is Storm Jones and Stephen Cobalt Northstar. Like, are these people that appear, or Stephen? Do these appear in uh, other stories? No. So none of them appear in stories. They're just historical figures. But, um, for example, Stephen cobalt Northside, he was like a famous general during the double war and he famously rebelled against the federal empire and that's kind of what led to the collapse okay um who else is mentioned Claron- yeah chloronymus was the, does, the famous right? he does yes yeah, so, cl- oh sort of yeah there is a story called the glass flower which mm. supposedly features the cyborg chloronymus but that's kind of the point of the story is he a real is he actually chloronymus or is he an imposter okay. but chloronymus was a he was a he was injured during the double war and then basically brought back to Avalon, revived as a cyborg, and then during the interregnum he had a, a task to take a scientific survey ship out to go and discover what human civilization was at this point, whether there were any humans out there, um, and basically try and reestablish connections between human colonies. So he's quite famous and then he founded the Academy of Human Knowledge um, on Avalon. Um, so yeah, they mentioned a bunch of people. A few of them are explorers. Celia Marseillan, Interregnum Era space pilot. Yeah, Melancholy so they are Tomo. <laughs> Melancholy, yeah, I think they're explorers as well. I think they okay. are mentioned in Dying of the Light, but none, none of them actually appear except maybe Chloronymus, but they're all mentioned in uh, lots of other stories. And the fact that they're, they're mentioned makes it that this ship came after all of that. 
just kind of weird. Like your ship came to this world after all that and just landed there. Mm. Pot- yeah, potentially because most of the figures are like either during the double war or before, but Tomo and Moss, I think they're after the interregnum. They're like a few hundred years afterwards. So the story might actually take place after the interregnum, well, even, even Ramos, though this right? world, it's, it's after like his whole story. Right. So it, it, this is, I mean, this is after the main interaction with all those planets as we end. Now these planets are still cut off. It's just kind of weird. That this the ship just came to this planet. Maybe it crash landed here. That's just, that's that's on the along the line that maybe it was actually Morgan came from somewhere else and she yeah. was stuck in their ship. But it seems to be yeah. working. You only think it could set up a distress. It was kind of maybe it's more likely that you know she found it and didn't know how to fully use those other elements of the ship. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to tell whether she whether it crash landed or she came with it. So I think it's described as some worlds the interregnum lasts like five years and then they were back on back on like Avalon. They they were able to regain Starflight pretty quickly, whereas other worlds are still in interregnum and like sort of hundreds of years after the war. Interregnum lowercase i. That's the way I view it. Right? Interregnum uppercase is for those main planets are now like that phase is over, right? Of the of, of near that like, you know all those planets near the uh, the, the edge or whatever. Uh, near war, war. Yeah. Like the, so like a historical period versus yeah. like a, a sort of a planetary state of, um, yes. of aggression. But yeah, there's potentially still hundreds of worlds like the world that Sean's on that is still kind of in chaos and haven't been reconnected with. Just looking at the discussion questions here, I think we've, have we covered everything here or? I think that's pretty yeah. much every. Kind of want to go onto the in the house of the worm because that that one I found I enjoyed more. <laughs> Are you sure you guys don't want to talk about George and writing for another thirty minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Let's give it another crack at it. We can yeah, no. Keep editing, uh, carry on editing to the worm. this podcast down until it's perfect. Get it out in five years. <laughs> one day. <laughs> so, in the house of the worm, or the most deceptive comic art ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was something. Oh, sorry. Should I give a quick sure. intro? To yeah. Uh, so the next story we're going to be looking at is In the House of the Worm. So this is a science fiction novella by Martin, first published in The Ides of Tomorrow, original science fiction tales of horror in 1976. It takes place on an unknown planet during the interregnum period. It is about a young man who lives a life of privilege in a crumbling underground city. When he's humiliated at the hands of a crafty hunter, he and his high-born friends plot revenge. So what would you give in the House of the Worm? How many worms would mm. you give it? I'd give it 4.5 out of 5 worms. I thought it was uh, a pretty interesting read. Uh, just one, number one, it just it was a page-turner. Like, I was actually enjoying reading through it, what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next. But two overall, I thought, is well-structured. Not a quite a five, because he's got better works in A Thousand Worlds. But yeah, 4.5. And maybe that's a bit high because I, I just read it recently and enjoyed it. I might might have been lower if it was a l- larger gap, but you know, I liked it. I have I have a harder time. I I'm I'm always I'm weirdly prejudiced. Like any you just any hate time, everything, Michael. Like, have you ever yeah, hated more well, than <laughs> the problem is is just that I hate the I like at least in um in Bitter Blooms it's like oh that sounds like a really cool ship. I wouldn't mind being on that awesome ship. But you don't like want to be in, in this world, yeah, I just don't want to be there. You just have to picture yourself in this world. Every I know, but like, like it just it makes there? me it makes me hate everything. It makes me like ugh, ugh. <laughs> everything is so gross, and it's everything is gross and dark and just sh- shitty, and it makes me hate it. But no, it was a good story. I mean, like I, I definitely agree. Like a much more of a page turner uh, than uh, Bitterblooms. 
but I, I don't know. Three, I'll go three and a half. That, that's that's my final offer. Yeah, I'm going to give this one a three and a half again um, for different reasons. Like I found the atmospheric elements of the story and just like getting lost in the sort of horror of this this journey and descent really appealing. But I didn't think it just had it just didn't have like I, did, I hated everyone in the story. Like all the characters <laughs> were awful people, which is fine. That's but, like, also just, part of my problem. Yeah, I, I just wasn't like getting into anything like whereas I was kind of appealing to the the sort of story of Sean and the way that that resolves. But here, like I wasn't really compelled by by Annalyn and the way that he resolves his his story. So I just wasn't feeling that as much, but I just love the atmosphere of it. So yeah, there and a half. I really enjoyed this story too. I think the world building was really rich and imaginative. Um, the story, it's a compelling mix of adventure, mystery and horror. And the atmosphere is delightfully weird and gross and really claustrophobic. Like I could feel my skin crawling and getting tense throughout. Um, reading through it, I found myself constantly asking like, what is wrong with Martin that he comes up with this stuff? <laughs> Yet at the same time, I just like, I couldn't wait to find out what was happening next. So yes. yeah, I give it four, four worms. Four spice worms, whole hogs. Yeah, spice worms. That's a good way. A good way of putting it. I thought you were gonna like announce a sponsor. That's what. <laughs> yeah. Why, uh, the ha- House of the Worm toilet paper. It's made from real worms. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> what was inter- one of the things I found interesting about this story because it kind of has like almost three arcs to it, or three, three, three. You know, the first going down toward the meat bringer story, and then the initial runaway, and then the kind of the resolution part, but. By by part two, I kept thinking, okay, let me flip the page. It's going to be finally over. He's going to die now. He's going to die. Like, when is he going to die? Like, it's almost like it's setting up that this guy's going to have a horrible death. It's like, what? This guy survives? To the end, that was kind of a, a subversion, to, in my view. I had no idea what was happening. Like, it was all so weird. And the story to me was more, not so much the fate of the characters, but what was going to be discovered. And again, it's like, yeah, like, most of the characters are pretty unlikable. Like, they were more just avenues or avatars to learn about the world um and the meat bringer is just such a weird perverse hmm. fascinating character so was, i do like was, him i like him that was the, the joy of it for me just, <laughs> just to learn these perverse weird characters and yeah. see what happened to them but i wasn't really expecting anything in particular other than to be grossed out i did find that the first page or so was a little bit hard for me to get into because it, it was just so much going on that was alien to me and I, it was hard to visualize it and actually looking at the the comic book actually was was pretty helpful in that sense because I read the comic book version as well. For just, just that first, I mean, after the first couple of pages and it got going, it was good to get into, but it was a little difficult that first couple of pages. I find these comics, yeah. the images of these, so funny because like it's so <laughs> not what I thought. Like, yes, I, I picture like such yeah. a dark, dank environment, even in the like feasting halls and like the nice places. Like, I picture even that having this kind of perverse, disgusting quality to it, which is this is very utopian the way that the. Uh, the uh, comic portrays it. Uh, relating to both of those two things, I think it's um, it's definitely a thing that I have where, like my the way I was feeling once I got into a story, definitely colors the way I remember the beginning of the story. Hmm. And so it's like you know at the beginning you don't really know what's going on, and so you're just going through it trying to figure out where you are and what's happening. And then later on, the story is all about crawling through the dark and everything being horrible. And so your memories, or my memories anyway, of the opening scene are the same, right? Like, that, that makes the opening scene seem seem horrible and gross, too, even if really it was perhaps not so much. Although they were eating sapient creatures and turning their <laughs> king. 
into a giant worm. So yeah. obviously it was still a little bit. Yeah, gross. I just like it's they're even described as like wriggling around and there's just like this feeling of like undulation and constant movement that just doesn't come <laughs> across in like this like beautiful image of a gala that we get in the comic. Yeah. Well, the, the comic is fitting the 80s. Like well, most of com- uh, George's graphical works are, are from like the 80s type period. And this is just even though this is from 2014 or 15, this it, it fits that. You know that that genre, that that feel of the eighties, very colorful and all this stuff going on. You got the mushroom, hot mushroom bread. But one of the, one of the things the the comic really hammers down those is the the groons or whatever they're the groons. It really makes them humanoid. There it initially didn't quite seem that when you're reading. It took a while to kind of like it really just straight up makes them like people, even their faces. Do you have an image of that in the ones you sent? Yeah, I've attached nice. a couple of key. Uh, pictures from the comics. I think it's the second picture. It shows when he's killing the when Annalyn's killing his. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like even the eyes. Okay, it, 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 I guess he doesn't have you know an iris or something, but it, it's pretty much shaped like a human head. You don't, you don't think they would have realized these guys are sapiens? Yeah, that is not what I pictured at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And their haircuts were like unusually good. <laughs> yeah, their haircuts are still like human haircuts. Like <laughs> they're better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the oh yeah, right now <laughs> yeah. better than mine by far. Well. Yeah, yeah, give, yeah. Give it a couple more years, and you're going to become a groon. Like you're going <laughs> to. Yeah, <laughs> I'm already. You'll be the there. third. You'll be the third way. Yeah. The third ones. Yeah. Two two weeks of quarantine, we just don't have eyes anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you had change masters that wanted to adapt you, well, just some of the artwork with regard to the the bridge room and the chambers and stuff, I d- did find helpful, kind of to to visualize yeah. it a little bit what was going on here. Like so, the, basically. They they start very close to the surface to the surface. In fact, they can they can see the sun there through the windows. As they go down, there's there's lesser like the fewer and fewer windows toward the outside. Right, you're going underground. Yeah, the mix of uh, the unexpected element that where I, where you're descending and we get all this fungus and all these natural like flora elements and fungal elements. Um, I think uh, like the idea of like the, all these vents like that really added a, a layer like him like mm. moving up the air conditioning vents or whatever kind of vents there. Um, just like made it more feel like this this weird technopolis full of decay. It, it's such a scary thought to be yeah. crawling through tunnels lower and lower and just hearing things moving and feeling things moving across your body and this, just the descriptions of the worms squelching. But even the thought of just being so far under the ground and having – like at one point he's walking along a worm tunnel and he like feels above his head and like the dirt is soft and it's falling on top of him. It's like, oh, this could just collapse at any time and you're trapped. Like that's terrifying um, if you're afraid of you know tight spaces or, or darkness or whatever. And it reminded me a lot of a, a film called um, The Descent. I don't know if any of you guys have seen that. It's about uh, a group of women go cave diving. And they go in, go under the ground and basically, um, their exit collapses or, or oh. crumbles and they can't get out and they have to find a way out. And some monsters are like down there with them. But that feeling of just being trapped is so, so much scarier, even than the worms themselves. Just, just like feeling like there's no escape. There's no light. There's no way out. Well, Annalyn feels that for, for a lot of the story. And then he kind of finally almost has like this epiphany where he's like, well, I've either got to try to do something or not. If I stay here, I'm dead. At least move it, and either I'll get out or not. He kind of he kind of has that point where he, I guess, in the house of the worm area, right? When he gets in the one of the one of the houses of the worm, where the worms are moving around. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty impressive how he 
is able to keep his head because I would be mm. like inconsolable. About well, I, I already, I, yeah, I already yeah. I just as a reader, I thought he was dead. I'm like, okay, when is he going to die? If I, is this guy still? Moving yeah, forward? he's got like one match left. His he's odds like, are you know, super miles under the earth. Yeah, and he's still going. He's still like got a optimistic mindset. <laughs> I think my favorite um, part of his little journey here, and it kind of follows from the theme we were talking about for Bitter Blooms, um, is the moment where even after he's kind of experienced all these proofs that the things that he has believed all his life are not are not so, he goes back to them in this moment of terror, in this moment of desperation. He like says the mantra to the White Worm, which I can read quickly, which is, So praise the White Worm, whose name is Yagala, and grieve not, though our light lights burn dim and die. So praise the White Worm, whose name is Decay, and grieve not, though our energy fades and fails. So praise the White Worm, whose name is Death, and grieve not, though life's cir- circle tightens and all things perish. So praise the white worm whose name is Entropy, and grieve not that the sun goes out. Like the fact that he returns to that even after having this this proof is kind of similar to how I felt about Sean, where like like you were saying earlier, Duncan, like this idea that even knowing that these things are constructed and false, you still want to believe in them because they're they're some kind of source of solace for you. Yeah, and, and they and they're not true necessarily, but they're true in the sense that you can still derive power and resolve from them. Like you can reshape the world with the determination you gain from them. Um, yeah. They still have some meaning. Well, like, a lot of what he's saying seems yeah. true to me, like this entropy and this light thing. I think he's just, like, <laughs> yeah. his point is that like, seems, like, seems on track. Yeah, he, <laughs> his philosophy is, is, is not to grieve about it or whatever, but the actual background is like, okay. Yeah. There's entropy. There's, there's that. <laughs> And there is a hope there that, you know, the description of this world is horrifying. Like this is a nightmarish scenario that the, the existence and the, and the environment they live in, but they've kind of built something out of it and they've like got rituals and they have food and they have gatherings and they have merriment. Like it's, a, it's a very, the society's fatalistic and hedonistic, but it's like, it's still functioning. It's still perpetuating. There's like, like as long as there's life, I guess there's some hope that you can, you know, have it tomorrow. I, know, I liked the Bitter Blooms Society a lot more, even though they were harsh. I think they were like Bitter Blooms. It seemed like I, I didn't even hear anything about a war. I think they, they realized war is not even worth it. There, they're going to have to work to survive, have traits. Whereas this society, they're they are so hedonistic. They are eating these sentient beings, and vice versa, and they are doom is coming with the worms that are growing. Like they should be working against it, and they're not. That sounds familiar, right? As far as uh, <laughs> let's talk about some yeah, these sort of pointless conflicts when there's a greater threat that should be dealt with. Yeah, they're, oh, they're certainly very complacent. And um, but, but but I mean, I, in my view, when I was reading it, though, I mean, the Gruens did not look like the Gruens in the comic. Yes, they were sentient beings, but they weren't this so close to humans. You literally could just put your face beside, it, and the only difference is, is is just the eyes. Like that, that was a bit much. I think they would have changed a bit more than that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So you you look at like the the food on the table, and there's this guy on the table. It's like, is that a groom? Like there could be a guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Are, are they that just jaded? I mean, could be. They they, they, just, they just. Yeah, it's pretty gross. <laughs> I was just looking at the start here. A quick note I made about the Lannister twins, Carolee and Annalyn. Sister <laughs> twins, right? Kind of so. So as far as those, like, I was really, like, the thing that this reminded me of so strongly, just just as a feeling, was uh, actually the prologue of A Game of Thrones. Um, mm-hmm. Just the idea of this, like, noble character who thinks that he knows best going into this dangerous place. And, and it, mm-hmm. the, the result of it's quite a bit different, but just the feeling of that journey felt, it really evoked that for me. 
What is Meatbringer Brandon then? Brandon Stark? I thought he was like I thought he was like uh, uh Garen, right? Yeah. yeah. But kind of different. Yeah, yeah. He's so crude and he, he doesn't care about the that that they shared the mating worm and all that. He's just like, "Oh, straight up goes for Carly." Well, I guess Meatbringer would be like um that maester who's cobbling body parts together. Oh, what's his name? I forget every character's Kyburn, name. But it looks like he's kind of like Kyburn, yeah. as well, right? Because he's kind of trying to breed with the different... Oh, yeah. Uh, or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both yeah. sides. Yeah, Krasta, yeah. Although we, don't, we never really find out if Meatbringer has been successful in actually having children. Maybe he maybe he is if, he, if he's had experience of that. What is Meatbringer? He's just he's just a, a mutate, mutated person like among the Torch... Uh, pairs or whatever people that work, I guess, and maybe with making fire or often in, in the dark at the same time. Maybe just someone who's able to both see in the dark and tolerate light. I guess so. Yeah. 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 I guess. I mean, it's not really very clear, like how how much the I, what are they the third third what three what third people third, third people third people what yeah. I forget what they call them. Yeah, what they keep saying. Yeah, so it's not clear, like, to what extent, like, that's actually, like, is that just sort of like a fantasy of, of, um, you know, Meatbringer, or is that something that is actually happening and he is one? Like, are there actually others, and do they understand how to create them, or is it just sort of an icon idea? Yeah, I don't know. Well, here's my first question, just starting off. Like, initially, I thought the Gruens were just an indigenous species to this world, but they essentially. It, it appears they're actually just humans that were modified pretty extensively, and then yeah, is that what, that's what the, that's the suggestion? Because when you look at the when he's in that room with all the Gruens on the wall, and then the first Gruen still kind of has eyes and is wearing a helmet with the Theta, so, so is that was that like the first Gruen prototype, and then it, it evolved. Well, it it seems like um, yeah, the Golden Theta is the symbol of the Earth biological eco core or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I think it's talked a bit about in um, Tufts Voyaging, which I haven't read, but I've read a little he bit wears, about. He wears a cap from the from the I think that has the Golden Theta on it. Right, <laughs> right. So that so they were part during the double war. Prometheus was the planet, and that was where the biological warfare corps was set up, and they would wage war against the Harangans by like basically just sending biological plagues, pestilence uh, affecting different planets. Um, ecologies or or um flora and fauna to wreak havoc against their enemy so this world or the the perilous state that this world is in may be a result of the biological warfare the creation of the grounds may, may be deliberate or it may be just like after effects of radiation it's difficult to tell well just the fact that he's wearing that helmet though suggests and, and, and you have like that that line of them Suggest that mm. they, but, but then why would they make them? Like, why would they make the Gruens and then fight against the Gruens? Unless there was like, maybe initially there was a first wave of people that were here, they made the Gruens, and then later this other wave of people came with other change masters and fought. Well, I mean, yeah, if it was deliberate, I guess you could speculate, um, cause I think the Harangan, like the head Harangans are underground, the Harangan mines are kept deep under the earth, so maybe that was an enemy that could sort of go under the earth to attack. Like the Gruens were being used to attack, like, or to conquer the, to fight other hanging species down there initially? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, to fight underground species or to f- sort of seek out the actual Harangan mines who sort of control all of the, all of the shock troops in the war. And then some other group of people came or crash landed there and then they kind of went, went at them. 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like there was a battle maybe with Harangans, and this this was kind of like the um, the devastation that followed, and no one ever reconnected with that planet. But initially, I didn't realize it was part of the Thousand Worlds universe because um, Bitterblooms, it's quite obvious because she's mentioning all these other planets and all these mm. other figures. But here, you can pretty it's like it's not clear except for a few key bits where they sort of talk about the Change Masters and they mention the Theta. I didn't I didn't actually know what the Theta was until I went searching online. Mm. Um, it's a zero with a cross in it or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't realize it was a symbol of of the Bio War. And I think that's what's or something. Or ecolog- yeah. ecological engineering core, I think was it. Yeah, the warfare corps. Um, and there's one other mention. I think during the when he's giving the mantra about the white worm, um, he mentioned something about the ships have left. So that's kind of another nod that there mm. was a, a more advanced civilization on this planet at one point. Yeah, it seems to me that the change masters were were mostly, if not all, on the sign of the like the the second people. Because the the Gruens had the imagery of like the change masters and the giants causing trouble for them breeding the. I mean, it's very tough voyaging when you see that they they started breeding these worms and other things. Like that's what they did. They used ecological, environmental warfare, biological warfare against others. So they 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 unleashed that against the Gruens here. But then just the fact that you have that Gruen wearing the helmet is just confusing to me. It's it's like is is that another faction of? Change masters or just the initial change masters? That that's unanswered questions. I guess you have to just interpret it one way or another. Mm-hmm. Like it could be, it could be that it, some change masters wanted people to adapt to become like these creatures. That that was the way because you know the sun's dying and it's worth to do so. And others didn't want to change humans that much. They said no, let's leave humans the way they are. And um, this is kind of brought up, I think, in Dying of the Light. Is there are types of humans that have been changed enough? by the Prometheans that they're no longer interfertile with the rest of humanity. So I think the, but the, the Kavalar are sort of fixated and think that they, they call them mock men, but they sort of call everyone mock men. They call like foreigners mock men. They call, you know, poor people mock men, anyone who's not Kavalar, they call mock men and hunt them. But that seems to be like a residual trauma that was left over from when they were fighting the Harangans or the Harangans were raiding them and sending, um, sort of different animals they, they, they or different flavors. They pretended to be them. like humans, right? They were the enemy and, and they yeah, were mocking infiltrate, but to infiltrate the clans. That's yeah. right. But I don't think that necessarily relates to the the people in the other worlds that were engineered because those were those were still people. Like they weren't engineered by the Harangans. Um they were just modified so much that they, they can't be interbreeding. Mm. Yeah, so these huge white eater worms were initially unleashed to, to against the Gruens, and they are wreaking havoc down there, but the, the danger is that they may eventually come up and attack Bull once they're down there. Yeah, and that, I guess that's kind of Martin showing the folly of war, that the, the weapons we create for our enemies are end up eventually just going to be used against us. Kind of makes me think of Godzilla, like the Godzilla movies are kind of seen as a an allegory for nuclear warfare. Um that we create. I'm pretty sure problems. Iron Man, the movie, did that first. <laughs> and, and Iron Man. And Iron Man. <laughs> well, a, a lot of stories, potentially. A lot of, like, Cold War era stories <laughs> use that threat, that idea that we create this terrible weaponry, but eventually it'll just destroy all of us. I'm Quite reading so. here uh, that the helmet description, I'm looking on the comic as well, and, and the, it says Silver Theta. The, it says Silver Theta, and the comic also has a Silver Theta, not Golden Theta. The helmet that was on the the groon, like the first groon with the still had eyes, 
Silver Theta. So I wonder yeah. if that's a different faction of, of Change Masters. That they, cause why or if it's silver? just, if it's like, um, I mean, it could be that the Change Masters themselves wear gold and they have their, I don't know, like a creation gets silver instead of gold. I don't know. But, but it, it, regardless, I mean, like the fact that so the Groons are created by Change Masters, I think that, that suggests it. Like if the, the first one is wearing a, a Theta helmet. Right. Hmm. I was just meaning that maybe Silver was a subordinate pick position or something. Yeah. I don't know. Have you guys read the story by Martin called um, Doc Doc with the Tunnels? Yeah, I, ha- that's in the, I have it in the uh, the kind of like the, the little book that has Song for Lie and other stories. I have that book. Yeah, yeah. I think it's in it's in Dream Songs as well. And um, I read that first, and I think that was published in 1973, so it was before. In the House of the Worm, and I noticed there's a, there's a lot of similarities. Like it's a much shorter story, but it's a, basically about. Initially, it takes place from the perspective of this little creature deep under the earth. Kind of, he can't see, but he can sort of. He's sort of psychic in a way, like he can sense other life forms, and he's hunting giant worms. And then it cuts to human beings basically excavating it, the planet, and you find out it's Earth, and that it hasn't been inhabited for hundred years since a nuclear war. Um. But it has it has the same idea that there's these two rival factions, humans and these little underground people, um, and there's this, and the little underground person thinks he's trying to make an alliance with the humans because there's these giant worms that are hunting them. Mm. So it's it's a much shorter story, but it seems to have a lot of the similar features that would eventually be fleshed out in um in the House of the Worm. That's a good point, Duncan. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually thinking about that as well. Having read this, I'm looking at the the date here, 1971. So it's pretty old. It's it's, it's almost like his first shot at the story. Mm. And then he went because there's nothing in this story to tie it to Thousand Worlds. In fact, it probably is not because the Earth is is a, is, is destroyed basically, irradiated that caused the evolution of these this this like species of human. And then these are the people coming back from the moon. So it's just like a one-off short story. But I think. He took this concept and then worked on it again in the House of the Worm. Yeah, yeah, because because Earth was never destroyed as far as we know in the Thousand Worlds universe. It basically just isolated itself from all the other planets. Um, yeah, and, and also, I, I mean, I remembered this story initially when reading House of the Worm, and I thought there, there was this other story by written by some other author. I remember, but it's actually George. It's George's story. <laughs> I, I did remember this story. Yeah, and the guy. The guy even has like a psi rat. Like he he has like a bond with his rat, the hmm. the, the, the human on the. Uh, the planet, but they, then it turns out that they're so different now because because the ones coming, the humans coming back from the moon was hoping they were hoping to get some more genetic variety, right? Because they only had a low population over there, and then they're, they're like, okay, maybe this is not a good idea because they were just so different. Yeah, and and that that theme seems to carry on here that the grounds look so weird or so foreign that they assume that they're enemies mm-hmm. or that they assume that they're that they're subhumans and therefore can be hunted and whatnot. But uh, they're actually very similar to each other, and they actually need to team up because they've got a much bigger enemy to face. So why do you think they gave him all these limbs, though? Or like, why did those come? That's, is that an advantage down there? Like, that was kind of, like, it just just made, or just made to make them seem alien in the story? I don't know. Was that in the original? I can't remember if that was the original text or it was just the comic. No, it is. I think that I mean, they have. It's in the text. Yeah. Yeah. It's six in the limbs in the text. Yeah, because in the because I thought they more they'd be more like sort of spider creatures yes. the way they described in the text, but here it's like they're human beings, but they've got extra they've got like almost tentacle things. <laughs> I, I think the, the the comic version is not very effective. Like it's like why would you have all these extra ones? Like the the, the story is just two extra ones, is it? It's just six 
I think it's like six limbs because they go, walk, go on the yeah. six uh-huh. limbs. Yeah, it makes a little bit more sense. Like this, this seems like awkward to have yeah. this many. And it sounded like they sprout out of the middle of your body. Like yeah. that's how it was described. So, because you can imagine they'd be good. You know, if you can't see, you can kind of feel your way around your environment. Well, in the end, uh, well, first, first, first of all, Annalyn gets the uses the helmet against the Meatbringer and kills him, which I I, I found pretty satisfying. They finally that was excellent. <laughs> that was a nice little. That was a great fight. I mean, <laughs> short as it was. The Meatbringer didn't expect that, right? He thought it was going to be easy, and it, 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 the yeah. first time in years he had, to, he, he had fought on even terms. Right. Mm. Like, he has a little trick that works every time, and so he always uses it, and <laughs> it doesn't work, and it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm dead now. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not going to be making it's that fun while lasted. <laughs> <laughs> and then Adeline uh. kind of, like, he comes back as a changed person, kind of like a prophet, uh, uh, and, and he's, like, saying, oh, we have to make peace, don't eat grown flesh, because you're essentially just eating another sentient being. And, and they they just keep him around because he's kind of interesting. Like they don't really care yeah, about what he is. They wanted to kill him yeah. because he was so popular enough that they didn't like he was, he was interesting enough that he was allowed to live. Right. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure what to make because he's basically on the same mission as the Meatbringer now, isn't he? He's saying we should interbreed with them. He is. Or is the, meat, the, the meat bringers uh, had no morality. Like he was eating everybody too. Like he just did what he wanted for his own benefit. But the the, the the line of having a third people is correct, but he's trying to do it morally. Yeah. So, so Adeline's wanting to do it in order to, well, well, one, because they're basically humans like us, but two, that we need to team up against the white worm, whereas maybe the Meepring was more about he just wanted to be a god and rule everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Adeline values idea, people when he sees the connection. Meepringer just sees them as animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says that, and that's when he fights them. It's, it's like, oh, you... You're just animals. It's like, alike, yes, but not animals, and then killer blow. That was awesome. Hmm. Yeah, I, I totally guess... read that wrong at first. I thought he was saying, like, we're not actually an animal, like, part of that kingdom of species. Like, we're, like, made of plants or something. <laughs> <laughs> actually, we're not. We're actually mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're mushroom bread. They're even more cannibalistic than we realized. They're all mushrooms. Okay, so I want to. Uh, we have the your discussion questions, but I do want to make kind of make the final comment on the the comic. Was just it, it's it's misleading some of the artwork on the comic. Like they have uh, Corella or whatever, like on the like like she's the main character going into the adventures. It's like she didn't do anything in the story. Don't don't you have a Zach? You have a copy of the comic. I have a copy of a the signed uh, copy of the comic. Not the comic, of, of just the book of some published description. I don't know where it is, but I did get one of those at one point. had no intention of ever reading it <laughs> until this happened. And I'm glad I did. I feel like I'm still like processing all of the Thousand Worlds stuff, and I'm trying to take in everything, but I'm enjoying these a lot. Uh, it's, it's really complicated, and that's one of the reasons I probably didn't enjoy Dying of the Light as much, because mm. it spends so much time describing the history of the thousand worlds and it's i don't know it, it, it gets a lot bogged down and i couldn't figure out who was aliens and who wasn't so yeah. reading through the reading through the in the glossary helped a lot but um I think that's hopefully like the, point for me like this gave me a sense of the different worlds that he's going for and i can kind of get a bigger picture from there yeah and ideally the the, the the short stories at least work on their own like you shouldn't have to know whether it's part of a bigger oh, yeah. universe or not it should the characters should just be interesting in their own right they definitely do um, I was trying to think, like, the, the fun of this story seems to just be, like, it's an exercise in creepiness and mystery, but I was trying to think if there was any underlying idea that Martin was trying to get at. Like, it seemed to be, like, you know, uh, the way we dehumanize other groups and whatnot, uh, 
the way that a, a society will rebuild after disaster. Um, but Meatbringer keeps mentioning the world, the word free thinker, and when he's sort of mocking Annalyn. Mm. Um, and I was thinking that maybe one of the things Martin is trying to show is the way that people kind of never question things. They're completely controlled by ritual. Um, they've been described the way the world works and how it's, there's this worm God and it seems so crazy and weird to us, but that's just, that's just normal to them. Um, and the image of these characters going deeper beneath the earth seems to kind of imply this search for truth or knowledge behind uh, superficial appearances. And even the descriptions of them going through the worm tunnels mm. kind of implies these established ways of thinking that have kind of so deeply ingrained and grooved that you can't really escape. Um, so it's a story about discovery or discovering the truth. And it kind of like made me think of like, um, you know, the, like Plato's cave, like you have to actually get out of the cave to realize the truth. Whereas this is kind of an inversion of that. You have to go deeper and deeper into the cave, yeah. to, into the darkness to escape light altogether in order to, to find the truth. Yeah, I totally buy that. But I think for me, what the ending suggests is that even if you do find the truth and you return to the rituals or the place of ritual, the place of structure and order, you can't really change it even when you know the truth like you're still inducted and trapped in that system like there's not and that at least that's the case for Annalyn. like he's not able to actually affect change when he uh, finds these things out so you're still you're still kind of stuck even when you uh yeah cover the things i, I wasn't sure what to make of it because definitely there is that yeah it, it seems like he's basically just been treated as a joke and he can't change anything and the world's just gonna gonna going to die anyway they're going to be overrun by worms he can't avert the apocalypse it's just kind of this torturous truth that will devour him um but i guess you could read it as hopeful like at least one person knows and maybe he can try and work towards something you know it's, yeah, it's better that, no one knowing it's that double-edged sword right like you have been enlightened but no one will listen to you so you just sound like a mad prophet <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well it depends on wh whether he had a lasting legacy which we don't know like did the next generation have more followers of Annalyn or something they started moving that mm -hmm. way a movement like we we just don't know that but the, the thing is um if other people also move down and start exploring they may also discover the same things but mm. we don't we, it's it's left unknown there um there's a, I feel like there's a lot we didn't discuss here. I guess we talked about Jen, just, the fact that Adeline's friends are her food. <laughs> they end up being hooked. It, it's just it's a really scary story. At the same time, it's like certainly he's playing with the horror elements here, right? He's oh yeah, the oh yeah. <laughs> are they on like chill or something? Is there ice there? Like the 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 picture here is kind of seems like they're in a chilled. No, there we go, a chilled black mist. Like they're 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 like frozen meat. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you gotta save them for later. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so many sensory assaults and yeah. moral assaults that you're kind of swimming through in this story. But it's kind of the story just kind of relishes it. Like I just imagine Martin just loving, just trying to figure out different ways of freaking out his reader. Yeah. Um, it's not written like it is freaky, but it's, it's, it's not written as like a grim, depressing story the way that, say, Meathouse Man is. Like it's it sort of has the feel of an adventure, like a scary adventure, but a sort of it's meant to be fun and compelling. Hmm. And he's lucky that the Groons actually treated him pretty well. Otherwise, he was dead. Like the fact that he when he when he worked together with that Groon, and that one helped him realize he was somewhat sentient himself. Or I, mean, I guess they thought that he was yeah. from the third race or something, right? Yeah, which is, I mean, it's also interesting that they I, I don't know that they're aware of the third race. I mean, like. 
it certainly gives some more credence. I mean, because before that, we'd only heard um, Meatbringer talk about it, right? And we didn't know, like, how serious it was. And But now, like, yeah, we, I, I wonder, like, what exactly is – what do they think about the third race, right? Like, they're trying to bring it about, too? Like, how – in what way are they trying to bring it about, you know? They're, are they capturing – I mean, they're not capturing people to breed with or whatever. I mean, right? Like – they didn't kill him. The fact that, the, that he said he was like the yeah, third they race didn't he kill see. him, right? Yeah. And so they certainly have some idea about the third race, but I don't know. I mean, we, I guess we don't know what they think or or why they think it or anything. So maybe he'll go back and live with them, and it'll be like yeah. Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the difference is that he actually knows where that room is with all the evidence. You think he might take somebody there and show them, but no one was interested in that. I guess. Mm. Does he actually, I mean, like... He's got I, the helmet, he can find his way. Yeah, he has the helmet, but I mean, it's still a confusing uh, situation. Oh, you're right. Maybe finding his way back to that specific spot would be different, right? Because he came back from a different route. What's going on with the world overall? Is It seems like the sun is, is dying, essentially, right? That's that's why they ended up going underground. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay, any final discussion questions, Duncan? Let's see your document here. We covered it all. Uh, I think that's pretty much everything. Okay, well, thanks, guys. That was, that was good after nearly three years to 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 return. We we survived our own uh, apocalypse of uh, this the reading group, and we're back. Yeah, mutated <laughs> in the, in the <laughs> with extra limbs, extra yeah. limbs, and resistant to coronavirus now. Yeah, that's good. Hope. Hopefully. <laughs> um. So, what do we have coming up next, Duncan? Can you give us a little preview? What, what's what we what we're covering next? So we were thinking of doing three podcasts in total, um, reviewing two stories each. So the next one I posed was uh, And Seven Times Never Kill Man and The Way of Cross and Dragon, which are both stories in the Thousand Worlds universe, and they both have religious themes to them. Cool. I look forward to it. I'll yeah. just suggest one one thing. As we'll, we'll do these three episodes as you suggested, but I, now I kind of feel like I want to just wrap up any any other Thousand Worlds stuff that we missed. We might have missed a couple of short stories, so maybe we can do a fourth, final one where we just wrap up any any leftover short stories. Yeah, point. I mean, I had a I had a look through, and we've covered most of them. There's a couple we haven't, um, but they're sort of smaller ones, like like a couple of pages. So we could maybe do all the all the remainder ones in a in a final wrap up episode. Yeah, because like the the corpse handling ones, although I'm not 100 percent sure if they're in this universe. I think they are. Like there's a couple of short, yeah. really short, short, like the shorter ones from those. Let's just wrap those up in a fourth episode, and then that's it. We'll yeah, be they are part of the universe. There's um, yeah. yeah, there's two other corpse handling ones. Uh, uh, what are they called? Um, Nobody leaves New Pittsburgh yeah, yeah, and Override, which yeah. are quite small, um, or quite sort of simple stories. But yeah, we could do those. Cool. We'll get those done, and then we'll be back onto the just general Martin Sphere, which we might not be in as much a rush to do. But it'd be nice to to finish this part of the. The group read, at least. When are you I'm guys doing really... Armageddon Rag? I'm still waiting on that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I still have never read that. I'm, I, I, read I guess, waiting for the podcast. For this, and then we yeah. never did that. Like, yeah. well, novels are tougher like to get yeah, yeah. the book. I'm still keen to read Fever Dream. I keep hearing really good things about it. It is good. So maybe Fever we can do that after. Like Fever Dream, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's get as many short stories done as possible, and then we can move on to novels. That way we kind of, like, checkmark the short <laughs> stories, and then... It's a good way of yeah. doing it. Yeah. Totally. 
Yeah, thank you guys for having me on for this. This was a lot of fun. I, I'm enjoying just, I think my favorite part of reading these so far is just like like we were kind of talking about, is seeing the ways that he has taken some of these ideas and applied them to his later works, but also just seeing his development as a as an author has been really, really cool so far. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, check us out on podcastadviceofire.com and Vassals of Kingsgrave and at Vassals of Kingsgrave, which I believe this, this episode will eventually be on the YouTube there as well and uh, we'll see you next time bye 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 I do have a few specific questions based on the text of Bitter Blooms I want to ask you guys, but just a generic question that came to mind. I mean, I thought this thought before. I mean, we're reading all these short stories and, and they're so good and we're getting a lot out of them. Like, do you kind of like wish if, like, if, if George is actually fully stuck in Ice and Fire, he's not going anywhere. I yeah. also think, like, shouldn't he just go, okay, leave it and just go and go back to doing like short stories or other works? Like, he, he can have other things he maybe he wants to write about and I would love to read them rather than just grinding away at a series that might be, he might not be making any progress on. I just yeah. don't know if that's realistic at this point. Like, I think he should follow whatever is inspiring him, but I just don't think he could do it. Like, I just, the, the pressure and the demands and just the expectations associated with finishing that series, like, it just, like, I, like he just couldn't justify it to himself, I don't think, which I, I think it kind of sucks, right? Because, like, mm-hmm. as an artist, you should just follow what is inspiring you and try to create whatever you want to create, but... There's just so many external factors that I think would make it difficult. I mean, as a practical matter, I, I mean, I think that that's true. Um, I, I, I don't know how he would extricate himself from the, you know, the web of expectations and, you know, I don't, you know, advances or, or whatever. I don't know what he's, you know, what his situation is, um, as far as all that stuff. Um, but as in just a, a pure, you know, wish fulfillment sort of thing, I think, yeah, I mean, if he's stuck this badly, um, you know, if he could write the book, he would write it. And the fact that he hasn't means that on some level he can't, right? And I really like these short stories. And, uh, yeah, I, I would love to get more short stories instead of, you know, potentially a bad book or even maybe not another book, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd much rather, if he is stuck, like, one, I'd rather him do something else. I mean, if he's got time to write Fire and Blood, he's got time to write another <laughs> short story um, and, and potentially be a much, much more interesting prose. But also, yeah, if he is stuck, maybe something like working in another area, working in another genre, working on a short-term project rather than the overwhelming mass that the Song of Ice and Fire is at this point, that might, I don't know, make him give him a sense of freedom, hmm. uh, you know, shake off the cobwebs, get the creative juices flowing. It could, you know, could have a positive effect, but either way, like if he can't finish song of ice and fire, do, do something else. Um, I, I do think if though, he's got, if he's got stories to tell, that's the thing he might. Not yeah. Be. That's the thing, right? Like I do Burn, truly think that if he, inside. if he really did have that burning desire to write about something else, I think he would, hmm. I think he would have, I think that would have happened. So, hmm. I don't think yeah, that's yeah. necessarily the case. We're talking about ideal I, scenarios. I'm, yes, I'm just saying, yeah. like, if it was, he, he could have in like 2001, just after like 2000, late 2000, Storm of Swords came out and said, okay, 
I, I, I got a nice little mini trilogy here. I'll, I'll let you guys imagine what happens. Let me move on to something else. But at that time, he thought he would finish it, I think, right? He was, he was still pumping them out at good pace. Yeah, and, and most of these stories yeah. were written in his early career. Like, mm. these were 1970s, early 80s. So he did kind of – so maybe these were all the stories that were burning inside him, and then he sort of moved on to novels because he wanted to yeah. tell deeper, longer-form stories. I think the last short story he wrote that wasn't A Song of Ice and Fire was – he contributed to like a, a Jack Vance compendium called The Dying Earth or Songs of the Dying Earth. It was something called um, A Night at the Tarn House. I think it was early 2000s. But I think that was the last new thing he published, and ever since then it's been A Song of Ice and Fire in Westeros. Yeah, I suppose he might have, if he'd stayed in Avalon and did a series of the books there, he might be stuck on uh, books, uh, <laughs> book six as well. Oh, like, ab- absolutely. A, a Song of Stars and Starships yeah. or something. Uh, I mean, it's so hard, right, to sustain enthusiasm for anything for so long. Like, how do you keep that spark alive? I don't know. Like, with any any material, it's it's a challenge. Yeah, I mean for sure, and I don't want to, you know, sidetrack into a whole thing of you know, sorry guys, what's what's <laughs> wrong with George and why can't he write? But like, what I really don't understand is how like he always says that he's working on it, that he's making progress. Like that is what doesn't make any sense to me, right? Like, I mean, there's just no way that that's correct, right? I mean, like it's somebody been... is, is deleting the paragraphs. I mean, he he, he writes four right. pages, literally yeah. if he, if he wrote pages one page week. every day over the last ten years, <laughs> yeah. we would have yeah. a hundred page book. But yeah, right, exactly. Well, I mean, he, yeah. he might have written a book ten times over, like yeah, the way yeah. he described absolutely the Dance of Dragons. Sure. Yeah, I mean, he described Dead Dance of Dragons with like trying out different perspectives. Like he'd yes. write, you know, the the car scenes from this guy's perspective didn't work. You'd re- you restart again. So you might've written it, you know, quite a few yeah, times. It just doesn't work. Huge, there's a huge difference between writing and writing what you, the thing that you want to publish. I mean, it, it, he's, he's being, I don't know if it's psychological, it's mental, whatever. It's just not, it's not coming out like the ending that he wants to the quality he yeah. wants. Well, then the question is, well, is he supposed to grind away at it for the next 30 years of his life? If he wants to do that, farewell. But but I, I'm just saying, if George actually himself is like, I wish I could just skip this and go do something else, I'd 100% support him. If that's what he wants, yeah. he should do what he yeah, wants. I'd, I'd support it too. I, I don't I don't need an ending. Like I'm ha- I'm not I'm not going to yeah. be brokenhearted about that. Yeah. I mean, even do nothing. I mean, if he's going to grind away for 30 year, next 30 years of his life and do not like, and, and he produces nothing more. Oh yeah, it's maybe, maybe he better. can enjoy the next thirty years of his life and go traveling or something. Yeah. Right? He right. can do what he does. Yeah, right. <laughs> dude, dude has hundreds of billions of dollars. He can do whatever he wants. But he does. Yeah. But the reason is the thing is he can't. That's the sad thing about it because like I remember when I, when we met him at at, at Comic Con, like yeah. I, we were talking about Mimi was talking about like China, her visits to China, and he said like he'd never been to China. He would have liked to go to China. He can't get away. He he can't go and like well now he can't go to China for another reason. But uh, <laughs> back, back, back then, he like he, he has millions of dollars, yeah. But he can't go anywhere. He can't take off for six months and go like any other millionaire could. He's stuck there, saying if he did that, everyone would roast him. So he, yeah, he can't the travel the world. Thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. On some level, I mean, and obviously, I mean, there are going to be, you know, you get to a certain level of fame, and people are going to be awful about you. You know, there's always going to be some some people who who want to talk about you and how shitty you are, but. I uh, I don't know. Like I mean, it this it, it's just it's been so long, right? I mean, it's been you know whatever nine years or almost nine years, and it's just like I don't know. I mean, obviously there are people who would roast him, but <laughs> at the same time, it just seems like most people at this point must have gotten to 
to some sort of like mental resolution, right? Where they're like, I'm not necessarily expecting anything maybe at all or soon or anything, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'd rather him take a vacation, right? I mean, basically, yeah. And I mean, you know, I don't mind him. Same way, like maybe you, you know, you get, you retire and, and you decide that you like, you know, fixing lawnmowers or something. And so you, you're always tinkering with the lawnmower in your mm-hmm. garage or whatever. Like maybe if George wants to keep tinkering and maybe he'll finish this book and maybe he won't, if he enjoys it on any level or wants to do it on any level, then that's fine. And that's great. But, yeah. but yeah, at this point I, him doing it because people want him to do it. I don't think is helpful. I mean, like, yeah. honestly, I would rather him spend his time, uh, I'd rather him spend a, a few months writing out like a just a little summary of what was going to happen that they could publish. Pretty good enough. Yeah, I think I mean, ultimately, right. And this is the last thing I think I have to say about this subject yeah. is just like the writing is always better when you're actually like want to do it right? when it's yes. something that, that you're drawn to. So like a world where we just get like the phoned in version of the next two books is not a world that is worth like pushing yeah. toward, you know, so. Yeah, uh, I'll say my final bit too. Is, is just yeah, if George wants to do this, then fair enough. I'm happy with that. I'm just saying that if George the next day said I'm done with this, I'm moving on, on to something else. I said I'm right behind you, George. I'm like the one guy, and you guys will be with me. That's great. I'm not gonna roast you. I said thank you, George. Thank you for producing this work. I've enjoyed it for you know 20 years, over 20 years now, and I'll move on to something next. You, you don't have to keep grinding away at this. You don't owe us that. Thanks, George. Books. We love you, buddy. I think it is it is interesting though that what we love George for A Song of Ice and Fire was kind of his late era career. Like he'd been writing for decades before that. So it is it is kind of fun and part of the reason I tried to track down all the Thousand World stories was because I like his writing, I find it really imaginative um and creative and it was just fun to like delve into that. So so far I've I've read Dying of the Light, most of his short fiction, but I haven't read Fever Dream, I haven't read tough voyaging so i'm excited to read that and i think that could be an avenue for all of these fans like banging their heads um you know waiting for this next book it's like remember he's actually written (laughs) decades worth of material that you're probably going to love because it's by the same person and a lot of it's quite different from a song of ice and fire one it's in different areas it's in horror it's in science fiction but two it's it's all these ideas that were like burning in him when he was young when he was an up-and-coming author and there's some awesome stuff out there so check it out there's okay. plenty to read. Read Unsound Variations and then listen to our episode. That was our first uh, work in this <laughs> this reading group. So that that was more. Michael remembers that. That was a good... <laughs> yeah. I love Unsound Variations. Vic, Vic was still around back then. <laughs> I'll have to give him an email. See what he's up to. Yeah. See, see if he comes back. But uh, that well, that's what I did initially 20 years ago when I was waiting for Feast for Crows. Is I went and I went to the library and then I pulled up a song for Lie and I'm like, what are these weird lips on this thing? And then I put it back. <laughs> And then I, it delayed me reading it for a year or two before I finally said, okay, I'll give this thing a, a shot. Like, there were some weird covers back in the day. How are you doing, Amber? Hello. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Amber. What are you up to? These I days? didn't, uh, poop, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Oh, well, you didn't uh, read this though, right? I don't, I think I, I don't think I heard back from you. No, I did not read anything. <laughs> okay. Well, so, <laughs> I'm just here to say hello and catch up and... Sure. Reminisce. Yeah, you were here. You were here for some of the good episodes back in the day of this reread group. Cheese doodles. Or, <laughs> is cheese that what they were? Doodles. Classic. I think so, right? <laughs> or uh, cheese 
Cheese Doodle Kings or whatever. What was it? <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the most psychedelic episodes ever. That was such a crazy. Just recording that, was that so episode. Long. That like website was so. <laughs> that website was so long. It was just it kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. It was just more and more. It was such a weird website. Down the tunnel. The cheesy tunnel. 